0: Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Talks at GS. It is my honor to be joined today by Mark Morial, President and CEO of the National Urban League, the nation's largest historic civil rights and urban advocacy organization. Mark has been at the helm of the National Urban League since 2003. Before that, he was mayor of New Orleans from 1994 to 2002, and a Louisiana state senator from 1992 to 1994. Mark is also the author of a new book called The Gumbo Coalition, 10 Leadership Lessons That Help You Inspire, Unite, and Achieve. At Goldman Sachs, we have worked with Mark and the National Urban League for over 10 years through our 10,000 Small Businesses Program and other initiatives. Throughout his career, Mark has been a leading national voice on issues of racial justice and inequality in our cities and of reform in the criminal justice system. Mark, we are honored to discuss those issues with you today as we also celebrate Juneteenth, the oldest national commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Thank you for being here with us.
0: Hey, thank you for having me and a great big thanks to the entire Goldman Sachs team, uh, to you, of course, to David Solomon, to. Uh, Margaret Anadu and to Dina Powell, who I work with very closely, all of them. Uh, So it's good to be in this conversation today. And uh, thank you for for mentioning Juneteenth, uh, which is an important commemorative day. And I know we'll get more into Juneteenth, its significance uh, and also its importance today.
1: All right, Mark, since we're having this conversation, as you rightly point out on Juneteenth, let's start there. For many in the black community, Juneteenth is a day to reflect on the country's long and troubled history with race and inequality. For others, this might be the first time they're hearing about Juneteenth. What has Juneteenth meant for you throughout your life, and why might it feel different this year?
0: I think people should understand the history of Juneteenth, which is really an interesting uh, history. So in on January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation took effect. The Emancipation Proclamation was in effect a military order uh, by President Lincoln utilizing his war powers to free African-American slaves who were enslaved in areas that were in rebellion to the United States. That's what's important. Uh, So it didn't end slavery in New Jersey or New York or in those places in the North where slavery existed. It ended it Uh, in those areas that were in rebellion to the United States. However, Texas, which was the most remote slave state, far to the west, uh, for some reason, the information that the Emancipation Proclamation had taken place uh, was not well known. And so those who enslaved in Texas remained in slavery until June 19, 1865, uh, when a Union military general uh, read the Emancipation Proclamation and a general military order that slavery was over and the Civil War was over. So Juneteenth, meaning June 19th, uh, began, in effect, uh, the commemoration of the notice to those who enslaved in Texas that they were finally free. Now, we've always, as, as a boy growing up, I remember celebrating both Emancipation Day, which was January 1st, Uh, and the tradition in the black church uh, on the evening before January 1st, on New Year's Eve, to hold night watch ceremonies, which were really in anticipation uh, of the notice that the Emancipation Proclamation and freedom from slavery uh, was about to begin, uh, to uh, celebrating Juneteenth, which was celebrated in school settings, in community settings. But people should know that 48 of the 50 states have passed resolutions or proclamations recognizing Juneteenth, observing it as a holiday, even if it's not a day off for people. Uh, The commemoration of Juneteenth has been pretty consistent uh, since the 1860s, and now it's ebbed and it's flowed. And I think today it is more significant because we have this new conversation and new action on issues of structural racism, on issues of uh, the nation's long history of racial injustice because its roots are in that peculiar institution, which historians call the peculiar institution, which slavery was. And uh, and so the significance of it is to recognize that today, certainly there has been marked progress uh, since 1865, of course, and certainly since 1964 and 1965, but we still, we still are dealing with the effects when it comes to health and economics and education uh, and how our society operates from racism and structural racism. And this is a moment, a moment, I hope, where people say, let me step back and let me better educate myself. Let me open my mind to something I may have heard about, something I may understand. Uh, For black people, it's something we've experienced Uh, For others, it may have been something they've heard of. Even for many, it may be something that they know nothing about. So I hope for many, this is a moment where people open their minds, uh, open their consciousness, and and certainly open their hearts so we can have a greater understanding. Because I think it's so essential if we're going to build the kind of 21st century nation I think we all want to build.
1: Yeah, that's well said. And you're right. Education is the foundation of getting people to really understand. And then you can move yeah. from there. So I, I couldn't agree more. You call George Floyd's death a spark to the world. However, sadly, history has repeated itself many times when it comes to race and injustice. What feels different this time? Why, why, why do you say it's a spark this time?
0: When I first saw the video uh, early, I can't maybe it was Tuesday morning, the day after Memorial Day. Uh, when I first saw the video, I was just waking up. I jumped from my bed and went and stood a foot away from the TV because I was almost screaming, get your knee off his neck. Because in real time, you saw a man dying. And then you heard the, the, the people who were taping it, the citizens on the sidewalk, exhorting him, the officer saying, the man is dying, can I check his pulse? He's bleeding, what are you doing? It was so, uh, you know, watching death uh, on a video, uh, just had a, 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 I mean, it put my heart in my mouth. How could this be happening, number one, and how could these officers continue to carry this out knowing that they were being videotaped by citizens on the sidewalk. Now, that made a big difference in the public consciousness, in the public reaction to this. And then when all of the video was put together, what you saw was Mr. Floyd never resisted. Mr. Floyd never fought back. Mr. Floyd never gave the police officers a hard time. And then, by the way, how are you down on the ground, face down, being handcuffed, because you, quote, had what was alleged to have been a phony $20 bill. I mean, a phony $20 bill. So the the entire response by the police was outsized for the quote, unquote, offense that may have allegedly taken place. And the the brutality of it all, uh, our eyes don't lie. A picture is worth a thousand words. A video is worth a million words we get an opportunity to see in real time. And I think the American public saw what black Americans have experienced and have called out for a long time. This is police conduct. At its worst, that's all too common in many American cities uh, and, and it is time for it to stop. And so there's been an eruption. I also think, secondly, that the Continue the 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 incidents that have occurred over the last decade, whether it was Trayvon Martin, Mother Emanuel, uh, the racial incidents, the religious incidents, of, uh, shootings in synagogues, the coarse language that comes from the nation's commander in chief, uh, the assault on on much progress. It sort of erupts. George Floyd was a spark. Those feelings, that outrage, uh, that anger, that sense of disappointment, uh, you know, it was there uh, and it was just ignited and it it ignited a consciousness among the American people, which we're seeing playing out today. Look, uh, you know, these, this moment, uh, I'm hopeful is a movement and not just a moment. Uh, I would have thought that The level of outrage after a Sandy Hook took place or after Mother Emanuel took place would have spurred some level of action, Uh, yet it stalled out. In this instance, uh, we have to ensure that uh, these efforts uh, continue. It is in everyone's vested interest to make progress against the nation's legacy of racial uh, injustice. And. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm happy to talk more about that because I think sometimes it's it's misunderstood, uh, it's not well understood, and for many of us, and for people in the United States, you've been taught through history books and through narratives, which are outdated, which are incomplete at best and inaccurate, and that has stimulated sometimes the thinking that quote unquote this issue and this problem has gone away and there's no after effects to it
1: yeah it's well said let's talk about police reform you've been yeah. you've been vocal on this you gave powerful testimony before the house judiciary committee yeah. just last week and the national urban league i think has put out a 10 point plan calling for police reform and accountability can you just given the debate that's going on right now, can you just talk about some of the specific actions?
0: Let me give you an interesting uh, 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 factor about the Minneapolis Police Department. So Minneapolis Police Department had tons of citizens' complaints. Very few of them were sustained, which means their structure of dealing with citizens' complaints were broken. But the Minneapolis Police Department, and, and you know, I, I say this to those who say, well, what about public safety and crime? Had a low, a low clearance rate, a clearance rate is something you don't hear about a lot in public, but that's when you as a citizen call the police and say, my car was stolen, they come out, they take a report uh, and then an investigator or a detective is supposed to go try to identify who in fact may have stolen your car. When they identify a person and make an arrest, that's called they've cleared the case, right? So the Minneapolis police department had a low clearance rate. That tells me that the department was probably spending its time on low-level offenses, uh, moving around the community, uh, doing things that are easy, stopping people, questioning people, throwing people up against the wall, uh, dealing with $20 bill issues, as opposed to the serious work. And this is what people who or organizational people need to understand. Usually these departments that have high levels of citizen complaints and high levels of police brutality are also ineffective in uh, ensuring public safety. Usually they're completely misfocused on what they're supposed to be doing uh, and fighting violent crime. So in a reform effort, let me just talk about the federal bill. So the federal bill, which, is called the Justice and Policing Act, does a number of things. So on the front end, it seeks to create a new system of standards, federal national standards that every police department would have to be adhered to to be eligible for federal funds. We, we and in effect, create a national accreditation system. We accredit hospitals, we accredit uh, investment banks, in effect, are accredited. We, we accredit, uh, uh, institutions of higher education, why not a system of standards and an accreditation program so that the hiring reforms, the discipline reforms, uh, the way in which citizens' complaints are handled, uh, the deadly use of force, are all part of a set of national standards that every department has to adhere to? Uh, the bill would provide a set of national standards. Secondly, what it would do is it would do some important things like ban some practices, ban chokeholds, ban racial and religious profiling. There's a long list of things which would be effectively banned. Thirdly, it would create a database system that every police officer in the country would uh, be a part of so that officers couldn't get fired in New York and then go ahead get, get fired in New York for brutality, corruption, or, or misdeeds, and then go to Hoboken and get a job, or go out to some town in Pennsylvania uh, and get a job, right? And so you have this kind of revolving door of bad officers that kind of just pop from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It would seek to create some transparency uh, around that. Then I think the other provisions, which I think are really essential, is it would strengthen the federal law when it comes to accountability. The protest and uh, uh, what we see with protest, people have to understand because I hear people say, well, and I'd hear conservative commentators would ask me, you don't get angry about black on black crime and crime in the community. Yeah, we get angry about it, but one thing we know, somebody's gonna be arrested, somebody's gonna be prosecuted, somebody's gonna be convicted. The issue with police violence is no accountability. We have the, the history is so poor that uh, Washington Post the Washington Post database shows that in the last six, seven, eight years, 99% of those that shoot and kill a citizen, regardless of race, do not get prosecuted. They simply, no charges are brought. So maybe some of those shootings are justified, uh, but certainly a 99% non-prosecution rate uh, for a universe of thousands of shootings strikes me. Why? Well, in the federal system, uh, the standard to prosecute an officer is so high, you have to prove willful disregard of one's constitutional rights on the account of race. Uh, In the civil system, if you file a lawsuit, a federal civil rights lawsuit, uh, the city and the officers simply need to raise the doctrine of qualified immunity which says i'm for the most part immune from suits unless you can show i clearly violated a well-established rule bottom line officers have been given protections that no other public official has officers have been given protection that no other public servant has and i am You know, I I think that balancing this off and creating a system of accountability would incentivize cities in a significant way and departments to change their training, change their hiring, do things differently. So what we need in this moment is substantial police reform, not cosmetic police reform, because we certainly we certainly have to do something significant uh, in America today because the the, the police killings are ripping uh, the country apart. And the response that we've seen with George Floyd has been remarkable in that it has not simply been Black people. It's been whites. It's been uh, Latinos. It's been Asians. It's been young. It's been old. It's 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 a, it's a remarkable thing that uh, I've not witnessed in in my life, right And uh, my my own son and his friends, teenagers today have organized their own Juneteenth protest march and rally. Uh, the spontaneity uh, of people, the response from the c-suites uh, of America, the the fact that people are taking a moment and saying, I understand this is serious. What can I do? How can I be a part of the change? Those are things I I, I candidly have not felt or seen in in my life in civil rights or in politics before. You've had moments and then they sort of fizzle. You've had moments and maybe you get some change. But my hope is that this is going to be something that is long term, uh, that everyone will be introspective and prospective about what they need to do. And recognize it is true we are all in this together. We're all part of this garment. You know, we're all part of this mosaic, we're all part of this gumbo, we're all part of it. And this is about the legacy of our generation for our children, I think. You know, what kind of nation in America are we are we gonna are we gonna tolerate a nation which is divided by race, ethnicity, religion? Uh, uh, that everything, everything, or are we gonna understand, let's respect our differences. Let's recognize that people need to be proud of who they are, their family traditions, their ethnic traditions, their religious traditions. But what we're trying to do here is something that in humankind has not been done. And that is the ability of a people to build a diverse multi-ethnic democracy, that is a world economic power.
1: Yep, okay, well said. Um, let, me, um, let me ask you <clears throat> about your State of Black America report, which you put out, mm-hmm. I think every year you put it out. Um, mm-hmm. Last year's report focused on voter suppression in the minority communities. We're obviously in an election year. Can you talk about it and talk, Me you know, has the pandemic, yeah, I, the pandemic think, have an impact on that? Just just give us your perspective on it. It,
0: it could, so here's, here's, let me frame this. I think it's morally reprehensible that people use trying to shrink the electorate or make it more difficult for people to vote as a tool in an election, as a tool. And that's what's been playing out over the last few years. You know, it's the conversations that are in the closed smoke-filled rooms of politics where people say, hmm, we're gonna have to, you know, tamp down the vote a little bit in order to have a better shot to win, so what this has led to is just a cottage industry of strategies, from voter ID laws to purging, so you don't vote for two years, you automatically get knocked off the rolls, stuff like that, to uh, uh, to uh, 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 efforts to make vote by mail non-existent or more difficult to end early voting, to just end things that make access to the ballot more convenient for busy Americans who have a lot of time demands on them because of the philosophy that the vote is a universal franchise. And so there's been a lot of efforts. I'm extremely concerned about that. In Georgia recently, you just had a debacle of long lines, non-working machines, Was it intentional? Well, if it wasn't intentional, it certainly was negligent. It certainly was irresponsible to allow that to happen. So, you know, we could get into, I didn't mean it, but the question is not, did you mean it? The issue is, could you have avoided it if you did? So I'm extremely concerned, I am, about uh, this effort. It's
1: Pride Month. I wanna get your thoughts on the landmark Supreme Court decision this week on LGBTQ+. Rights in the powerful, workplace. Um, you spoke, yeah. People. You spoken out in favor of the decision. So let me let me have you react to that. That's it. powerful
0: <clears throat> and unexpected. Uh, I thought most of us thought it was going to be a five-four decision the other way, uh, and uh, you know, it, it, it demonstrates that that there's hope, right? And it's an important decision because many of us have been working uh, in a coalition over the last few years to get a congressional act. Uh, which in effect banned employment discrimination and housing discrimination, et cetera, on uh, L G B T Q citizens. Uh, this, 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 this decision by the Supreme Court, which in effect applies the 64 Act, uh, and it was the right interpretation. Uh, and when you can get someone like Neil Gorsuch, who's a, kind of a strict constructionist guy, uh, to, uh, to embrace this, uh, it, it, to me, it then becomes very difficult for anyone to really criticize this decision, but it's the right decision at the right time. I mean, the courts in this country, we have a breathing constitution. You know, I totally disagree with the late Justice Scalia on a strict reading of the constitution because the constitution is not a statute. The constitution is a is a magna carter. It's a, it's a philosophical document. It creates principles and as times change, and evolve, you know. You know, the interpretation of these great words uh, should certainly follow suit. Words like equal protection uh, of the laws, the, the statute in 1964, uh, being uh, being being interpreted to apply to LGBTQ citizens. So, I applaud this, and and I think it's a step. I think that the country has changed on these issues. In my book. I talk about an incident that occurred in 1992, because when I was in the Louisiana legislature, I actually introduced an anti-discrimination bill based on, which would have made it against Louisiana law to discriminate against people based on uh, sexual orientation and gender identity back in 1992. And I introduced a companion bill, which was a hate crimes bill, which would make it illegal to commit a crime on the basis of race, sexual orientation, religion. And I had a confrontation, and I should just let people know, uh, with one of my colleagues over the bill. And I was a rookie, I was a freshman senator, I think it was 32 years old, 33 years old. And uh, I presented the bill on the floor of the Senate and one of my colleagues raised his hand, and this is how it works in the Louisiana Senate, walked up and said, I have a question for you. Uh, Senator Morial, he says, I want to know if this is, quote, unquote, a queer bill. And I said to him, I don't think I understand what you're saying, Senator. And he repeated it again. And I paused. Then he said, he said, well, Senator, what what do you call them? And I said, well, Senator, I call them people just like me and just like you. He went and sat down, embarrassed. I mean, it was it was it was a really stunning moment because I was a freshman, and I mean when he asked that question, I was almost taken aback, right? Because I'm thinking, oh, is this place, is this how these guys are up here? I mean, they're gonna come at you just boom, right in your face, right? In public with television cameras and people watching. But but the point is, is that. Uh, you know, I have a, you know, a, a philosophical interpretation that human rights and civil rights are just fundamental and basic to people. And uh, if you don't, if you can't embrace that, and I also just for whatever it's worth, and I say this in the book, uh, you know, I was raised Catholic, and I simply, you know, feel like I have a right to disagree with interpretations of uh, of whether it's the Bible. Or, or principles uh even so i've never I've never I've never agreed you know with the interpretation of the Catholic Church at all uh, on these sorts of issues I always thought it was wrong i always thought it was pig-headed and i always thought it was not it was not based on any philosophy of uh, of the Bible it was always just what I call man-made bigotry
1: let's talk about the gumbo coalition and particularly Um, your focus on leadership because really this book has a lot to do with leadership. Just reflect for us, what you've learned about your own leadership, you know, over the years, but also during this pandemic and over this, you know, and with all the racial injustice that we're dealing with now, just you, you had to evolve as a leader. Just talk to us about that.
0: And one thing I learned early on, you have to respond to the moment and you have to respond to crises. And one of the fundamental principles of, of my leadership is the, 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 value proposition planning, responding with plans, planning and gaming out, uh, scenario playing. In the book, I talk about many, many instances from being mayor, being president of the National Urban League, some experiences I had when I was a young lawyer, and there are 10 leadership lessons in there. Uh, One of the most important things is, is leaders rise to the occasion when emergencies take place, when crises take place, is when leaders should rise to the occasion. And sometimes when a crisis takes place, you may not have a well thought out coherent plan, but then you're tested to figure out how you respond. And like some basic principles of leadership, uh, it's about having a powerful team around you and listening to the team and hearing from the team but also recognizing you got to call the shots. You got to make the decisions, particularly in a crisis. Uh but it also uh talks about how a wise man changes and a fool never. That you could have a great plan and circumstances adjust and you got to adjust. And you got to know when to modify and you shouldn't be afraid to modify. But modifying a plan doesn't mean bouncing around Ah, uh, changing a plan every 15 minutes because of a whim, and then I talk about uh, not being paralyzed by the unexpected. COVID was unexpected, unexpected, and we saw leaders. We saw paralysis. What is par- how does para- paralysis manifest itself? First, in denial. This is not a crisis. It's not as bad. It's not what it is. Uh, Paralysis sometimes manifests itself where leaders say, I have this under control. Uh, I have it uh, completely uh, nipped out. Where they, 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 they personalize it versus understanding that in a crisis you have to rally your constituency, your followers, your employees, your customers to confront it, to confront it. And so building Uh, 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 you know, responding to a crisis uh, in a team-oriented way is extremely critical.
1: Well, we appreciate that advice and really appreciate your time. You have so many powerful words for our people. uh, Thank you. And for the society at large. We really appreciate it. We We wish you good luck going forward.
2: This podcast was recorded on June 19th. 2020. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.